this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy that we call 2 Timothy really is one of the unique books of the Bible because it is a, it's actually a personal letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And so we see things about Paul, his character, his nature, uh, where he was in life that we really don't see in other, in other letters that he wrote. It gives us a unique perspective because it was written at the end of uh, Paul's life, or at least he felt like it was coming uh, to the end of his life. And so he, he wrote these things to Timothy really as a, a final encouragement uh, to him. He had hoped to see Timothy again. He had hoped that Timothy would come. And as the book closes, he tells him, hey, bring my, bring my heavy coat to me because it's about to get winter time and bring these personal documents to me. But it was very, very possible that he knew this was going to be some of his last correspondence and communication with his, his dearest son. He offered to Timothy a perspective that, uh, that is rare in life. And, and it is a perspective that I believe we can learn a lot from. The perspective uh, that we see in 2 Timothy is helpful to us as believers because it is the perspective of someone who has sort of accepted their fate. Someone who realizes that everything in life isn't going to work out the way I'd hoped it was, that everything in life isn't necessarily happening the way I think it should. However, in spite of my circumstances and my situation, I have run the race. I have fought the good fight. I have believed in God in spite of all of these things. And as we started the series, Paul said, Timothy, I'm writing to you and my conscience is clear. My mind is clear. My heart is clear. And in the world that we live in, and certainly people who deal with disappointment and difficulty and struggle and testing of their faith, it's really a miracle for a person in that circumstance to be able to say, my mind is clear, my conscience is clear. And yet that's exactly where Paul found himself. Paul, as he wrote to Timothy, wrote a letter to him, and as you read the letter for what it really says, it actually is contrary to a lot of, of, of the way that we read the Bible. It wasn't written from a place of victory. In fact, it was written from a place of earthly defeat, yet faith in heavenly victory. It wasn't written from a place of, I've achieved everything, I've trusted Jesus, and he's given me all the good stuff. It was, I've trusted Jesus, I've lived through hardship, and even though I'm about to die in hardship, I still believe in him. It's I fought the fight, and in this life I'm losing, but in the life to come, I know that I have already won. That's the perspective of 2 Timothy, and it, it challenges a lot of our modern Christianity. Contrary to how we usually read our Bibles, the, the fate that Paul was writing from was not through the filter of someone who had to have or even was living in momentary success. Instead, it was a person who had experienced quite the opposite and their faith had given them the strength to keep going instead. See, Paul was in prison. His ministry was shrinking. His influence was shrinking. His friends had left him. His friends had abandoned him. He had gone to court. And no one was there to support him or help him. Everything that he had sowed his life into wasn't seeming to bring a return on investment. And yet, in spite of all of that, Paul writes to his dear son to encourage him. He writes to his dear son to tell him that the price, even though is great, 
is worth it. That at the end of his life, his perspective, his eyes are clear on the prize that is before him. You see, time has a way of pushing to the surface what is really inside of a person. We said it last week, it's a, a saying, I don't know where I heard it. I certainly didn't make it up, but I've heard it lots of times from lots of places. The truth is, over time, people either get bitter or they get better. You like that saying last, last week a little bit better than you like it today. Have you had time to think about it? Over time, people get bitter or they get better. Trials in our lives have a way of causing us to either get bitter or get better. Disappointment has a way of causing us to get bitter or causing us to get better. Here Paul was at probably what could be considered the greatest moment of trial in his life he is dealing not only not only with the with the idea that he's about to be executed but he's dealing with the rejection of people that he's loved and that he's cared for he's at the end of his race and he says to Timothy I'm not getting bitter, bitter. instead I'm getting better I'm I'm attracted more to be like Jesus today than I was in the beginning. I know him in a greater way now than I've ever known him before. The truth is, friend, in our world that we talked about, our VUCA world, in our world of challenge, in our, our world of unmet expectations and disappointments, the truth is the kind of faith we have whether it be in the authentic Jesus of the Bible or a modern Santa Claus Jesus who just gives us what we want, it's going to be tested. And over time, we will either get better as we become more like him or we will get bitter because we become more like Satan. It's that simple. You become like the one that you follow. As enough seasons pass in our life, a tree always gives its fruit. Given enough time and pressure, you will find out what you are made of. I'm going to say that to this side over here. Given enough time and pressure, enough disappointment, enough heartache, enough rejection, enough brokenness, you will find out what you are made of. And 2 Timothy uncovers for us a real problem that many of us have with the way that we read scripture and that many of us have as it relates to Christianity. See, we have been taught to take the Bible out of context and turn it into little slogans that only reinforces our earthly triumphalism, this idea that if I do the right things, then surely God is going to give me what I want and what I need in this life. Many of us have been taught the Bible not in context. We've been taught it in slogans. We've been taught it in bumper stickers. Nowadays, we've been taught it in memes that are just there to make us feel good and not feel good about Jesus, but feel good about ourself. Our, unfortunately, our faith has been created in such a way that we just continue to reinforce this idea that we measure the effectiveness or the efficacy of God in our life based on my circumstance right now, my situation right now. God is only real if I get the answer that I need right now. 
God is only faithful if my bank account is full today. God is only good if things are good in my life right now. The problem is if you, if you will read the Bible, actually read it, not just bumper stickers, not just slogans. If you'll, if you'll actually read it, the truth is that the people that, that wrote the Bible and the people to whom the Bible was written to were in most cases not people who were living in triumph. In most cases, they were people who were living in hardship. It was people who was in slavery. It's in people, it was written to or by people who had been defeated. It was people who had everything robbed from them. It was people who were dealing with lack. And yet in spite of their defeat, in spite of their slavery, in spite of their lack, in spite of their hardship, they said, we know who God is and we know that he is, he is our God and we are his people. And in spite of our circumstance and our situation, we still believe. Because we're not measuring God based on our flesh. We're measuring God based on his identity as God. We're not basing our faith on what I'm dealing with at the moment. We're basing our faith on an idea that God has overcome the world. The truth is, most of scripture was written by and written to people who were, who were living lives in unrealized faith, in unrealized expectations. When you read about the great fathers and mothers of faith in Hebrews, what you read about are people who did not experience the promise in this life, and yet they still believed. They still reflected the nature and the character of God. And so when Paul is writing to Timothy, he's not writing from this place of great triumph. He's writing from this place where everyone around him thought he was defeated. And he said, I still believe. And Timothy, I want you to still believe. I'm finishing the race well, Timothy. And I want you to finish the race well also. Let me tell you how to do that. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at how Paul has talked to Timothy about finishing this race well as he was finishing his race well. And he says, listen, listen, Timothy, this, this gospel that we preach, it's not, it's not based on our achievement in this world. This gospel that we preach is based on the transcendence of Christ and it's based on the transformative work of Christ in our lives. It's based on the fact that God is growing within us, his character and his nature. I'm, I'm, becoming, I'm becoming someone who has love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. I'm a person who lives and walks with self-control. Timothy, that's how we're measuring whether or not your faith is real. That's how we're measuring whether or not your spirituality is real, based on the fruit that you bear, not based on what you produce, what you produce in this life. Last week we looked at um, 2 Timothy where, where Paul really is unpacking for Timothy, listen, the, the truth about a a, a, a productive Christian life is that that you will bear, as I have bore you as a spiritual son, that you will bear spiritual sons and daughters. Remember, the only real Christian, the only real output of an authentic Christian life is disciple making. 
It's not all this other stuff. It's not kingdom building on this earth. It's disciple making. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. And Paul had had discipled Timothy. And now Paul says to Timothy, you make disciples also. And last week we looked at chapter 2 where Paul is talking to him about what it looks like to make disciples. And what these disciples will look like and how you distinguish them. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. Paul has come to the end of this letter. He's at the end of this place where he's telling Timothy, I've fought the good fight. And he says this, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul has this perspective that says the reward that we're fighting for, the life that we're working toward. It's about a crown in the life to come, not a crown in this life. Paul accepted his faith. He had said, my reward will be in the life to come. My honor, my crown, my glory will only be found as I follow Jesus. The fulfillment only is in Christ. It's only in the life to come. It doesn't have to do with how I'm accepted or applauded or loved in this life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. As Paul has wrote to Timothy and he's talked about being a disciple making disciple and he says to him listen Timothy flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness faith love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome everyone say quarrelsome yeah I just wanted to see if you had an easier time with it than I do it's a hard word to say but must be kind to everyone everyone say kind to everyone kind to the people who agree with me Uh, that's not what it says Kind to the people who come to North Place Church only? No, that's that's not what he said. Only kind to Christians? No, that's, that's not what he said. Only kind to people who have the same social status that I have? Only kind to people who vote the same way I vote? Kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Remember, we talked last week about the focus of a loyal soldier who does hard things, but does them with character, 
the character of an athlete who follows the rules even when no one is looking, an athlete who lives with righteousness, doing what is right even when nobody else sees. Remember, he said, be like the farmer, the farmer who navigates the different seasons of life and patiently waits for the harvest. What harvest was he talking about? He was talking about the harvest that he revealed in chapter 4 where he says, at the end of all of this stuff, I get the crown. At the end of this life, I get the reward. At the end of this life, everything that I have lived for comes to pass. See, a farmer understands when harvest comes. He doesn't harvest too early. In chapter 2, Paul is teaching, he's teaching Timothy about how you, how you build legacy, how you become mature, and how you help to mature others, how you survive in a VUCA world, how you create a movement of followers in a world that is crazy and doesn't make sense and that is turned upside down. He says, Timothy, if we're going to create followers, if you're going to live a fruitful life, then you're not going to get involved in civilian affairs. Repeatedly, repeatedly, Paul warns Timothy, both in 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, he, he warns Timothy about false teachers. There was a huge concern in the early church about false teachers, those who would twist the gospel and would add to the gospel and therefore lead people away from Jesus. And as he's warning Timothy about these, these, these false teachers, he says to him, listen, Timothy, you can't get involved with these false teachers. You can't get involved in this pseudo-intellectual argument where people sit around and argue about things and they never intend for the argument to come to an end. You read chapter 2 and you understand it. I love the way that Paul breaks it down. He basically says, Timothy, it's a trap. Don't you understand that getting involved in these endless arguments and debates, it is a trap. Getting in arguments with pseudo-intellectuals who have no business in ever finding an answer, they only want to argue. Getting in arguments with pseudo-spiritualists who twist the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn it into a gospel of triumphalism, it's never going to do you any good. Don't involve yourself with this nonsense. It's a civilian affair. It's concerned with this life, not the life to come. Pastor Randy, how do, how do I avoid these arguments? It's very simple. Is it about this life or is it about this life to come? Does it make Jesus king or does it seek to build our kingdom? Is it about self-importance or is it about Jesus being important? Does it put the crown on his head or does it put the crown on our head? The false narrative that Paul was trying to fight against and that he was trying to help Timothy fight against was a gospel that puts the crown on the man instead of the man putting the crown on Jesus. He says, Timothy, don't involve yourself in this. See, the mature Christ followers' intellect, emotions, and faith are unthreatened by the arguments and the intellect and the emotions of those around him. Man, you got to get that. In a VUCA world, we are constantly under threat. 
Paul was in prison. He was in chains. He was, his, his very existence was threatened. His ego was threatened. His ministry was threatened. His livelihood was threatened. And yet he says, Timothy, I'm not threatened because my faith is solid. And he says, Timothy, you can't be threatened either. You can't be threatened by persuasive arguments. You can't be threatened by pseudo-intellectualism. You can't be threatened by a spirituality that's based on this life instead of the life to come. See, a person who is mature in their faith, how Timothy would know that he is maturing and that he's raising up those to come behind him who are maturing is that their intellect, their emotions, and their faith will not be threatened by endless arguments. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, is my faith unsettled by the intellect, the arguments, and the emotions of those around me? Does my faith in Jesus, does my faith in the life to come, does my peace, is my peace threatened by the arguments of this world, by the arguments of people who don't know Jesus and are not interested in knowing him? People who just want to debate with me because they want to debate. People who want to preach a gospel of materialism instead of preaching a gospel of sacrifice and servanthood. Am I going to get caught up in these debates? Do I have anything to prove to these people or do I just follow Jesus? You see, you and I, friend, must understand that if, if we're going to be like Paul... If we're going to come to the end of our journey and our conscience be clear, if our conscience, if our mind and our heart and our emotions is going to be clear in a VUCA world, if we're going to live through hardship and difficulty and trouble and trials, our faith must be rooted in truth. See, the trick is understanding that all of the arguments are a trap. I have to be honest with you, I've, I've always read... 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, I've read it most of my life incorrectly, um, where Paul says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call the name of the Lord. I, um, I grew up in a, um, a Pentecostal charismatic background. And I grew up, and I have to, I'm being honest with you, when I read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, I would focus in on that part of power. Don't deny the power. And, and, and I always grew up focused on the power, the power that I would have or the power that I would receive. And so when I read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, I always read it in terms of, of power for me to do something, power for me to pray for somebody and then be healed, power for me to whatever. When in fact, the power that Paul is talking about when he speaks to Timothy has nothing to do with those things. It has to do with the capacity to live more like Jesus. The capacity to be transformed in the image of Jesus. The capacity to bear the fruit of the Spirit. I wonder how many times we don't understand or we deny the power of the gospel of Jesus. We deny the power, the transformative power of Jesus to cause me to look more like him, to be loving and gentle and kind, to be meek and tender and long-suffering and patience. We're concerned about getting more power or demonstrating more power when what Paul is talking about to Timothy is the power of Christ to be at work in me, to transform me, to look more like Jesus. 
the mature Christ follower understands as I follow Jesus, he is, he is transforming me and I am becoming more like him. The immature thing that Paul is warning Timothy's and others about would be being distracted being distracted by civilian affairs, fighting battles that really don't matter in the kingdom to come, things that are inconsequential. Paul calls them foolish and stupid arguments. I like that word, stupid. Paul said, don't get caught up in foolish and stupid arguments because here's what it does, Timothy. It renders your capacity to represent the authentic biblical Jesus, it renders it ineffective. Because you're basing your battle on terms that do not matter. You're, ba- you're fighting battles that are inconsequential for a kingdom that will pass away. Timothy, don't get caught up in these arguments that renders your faith ineffective. Instead, allow the power of God to transform you and allow his transformative power to preach the message that your arguments can never convince someone of. See, I'm never going to change your mind about certain things. But here's the deal. I don't have to. I'm never going to win the argument over certain things because certain things are truth whether you agree with them or not. And if I tell you their truth and I fight you to the ground over that truth and I render my testimony of Jesus ineffective, what good have I done? I wonder how many times in my life I have fallen into the trap, the trap that Paul was warning Timothy about. The trap that Paul calls it an act of immaturity. When he says flee youthful lust, I always read that and thought he was talking about, you know, don't look at girls and lust after them. I always, I always read it and thought he meant don't drink, don't smoke, don't be with those who do. That's what I always read. But the youthful lust that he was talking about was the lust for power. The lust to be right, the lust to win the argument. That's really what he was talking about. I know probably none of you in this room are argumentative. (laughs) But I'm like a dog on a bone when I got a point to make. My, My parents used to say, you'll argue with a brick wall. I had to be right. Anybody besides me? When you know something and somebody disagrees with you, come on. Okay, I'm not alone. The rest of you, thank God for the wonderful grace and peace you walk in. I always thought the youthful lust he was talking about was this other stuff. And while Paul definitely addresses these issues, in context of the chapter, the youthful lust that he was talking about was the youthful lust for being right, for power, for proving your point, for making people agree with you when they are unagreeable. That's the context. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the youthful need to prove yourself. 
That's the whole theme is he says, Timothy, you don't have to prove yourself. I am done trying to prove myself, Timothy. I'm locked in prison. I'm in chains. They're about to kill me. No no one will argue for me. No one will stand up for me. And it doesn't really matter. I've made my case and I've lost the case. And now I'm going to die. But here's the deal, Timothy. Here's the key to all of it. None of it matters. I don't have to win the case because Jesus already has. And the foolish, the immature believer tries to argue a case that Jesus has already won. Tries to fight for things that people don't even want an answer for. They just want to argue. Paul says, Timothy, in this VUCA world, don't get caught up in the nonsense. Don't get, don't get caught up in the nonsense. And here's the deal. If you don't get caught up in the nonsense, you're going to be able to love people the way that Jesus loves people. You're going to be able to be kind to people who disagree with you. You're going to be able to just consistently represent the gospel in their life over and over again because you believe more in the power of the gospel to transform them than you do in your power to argue them into the kingdom. Man, I hope you get this. Uh, I hope you get this. I... I am not going to argue you into the kingdom because I trust the gospel to transform you, not my human argument. There are people in your life, in my life right now, that we know. Some of you are looking towards the holidays and you're thinking, oh, I really enjoy Christmas dinner, but I don't want to see them because I know we're just going to fight. Because I know they know the truth, but they won't admit it. I know they know they need Jesus, but they won't admit it. I know they know this is right and this is wrong and they won't admit it. And you're looking towards those relational interactions and just something starts to boil inside of you. Paul says, Timothy, what's what's more important is the not the efficacy of a fake faith, but the efficacy of the gospel in their life. And if you will just trust it, it will do its work. When we take it into our own hands, what do we do? We cut off its power to accomplish its work in their life. Paul says, Timothy, listen, don't fall for the trap. Everybody say, don't fall for the trap. Say it again. This Christmas, Christmas dinner, don't fall for the trap. Don't fall for the trap with that coworker, that neighbor, that friend. Don't fall for the trap. It's a trap. Arguments that were never meant to be won and don't matter. Because what God can do by his spirit, I can never accomplish with my intellect. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul says this, but but mark this. I read this to you the first week. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. The power of godliness is the power to transform us from the inside out so that we are not lovers of ourselves. Do you understand? 
The power of the gospel, the efficacy of the gospel is to transform us so that we are not lovers of money, so that we are not boastful, so that we are not proud and abusive and disobedient, so that we are not ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, and slanderous. The power of the gospel is to transform us. That's what the power of the gospel is. I would read this passage of scripture and good, remember the good little Pentecostal in me. I would read that and denying the power thereof. And immediately I would take the Bible out of context and I would start thinking about, whoa, my power to do stuff. And that's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about the power to cause me to be a living, a living demonstration of the gospel. Instead of arguing it with my mouth, I'm demonstrating it with my life. Instead of convincing people with my intellect, I'm convincing people with the grace and mercy and peace that I walk and live in. So that's a whole other level. That's a whole other level of disciple making. That's a whole other level. That's a whole other level of accomplishing the work of the kingdom of God instead of building my own kingdom. What does it mean to have a form of godliness but to deny its power? What it means is that I preach a false gospel that is all about what I get and accomplish in this life. A false gospel focuses on man's power increasing while a true gospel focuses on the transformative power of Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you were to be honest with yourself about your faith, if you were to be honest with yourself about your theology, about how you read the Bible, about how you think about God. Do you and I think about God in terms of how my power, the stuff that I have and I get and I demonstrate in this life increases? Is that what my faith is built around? Do I read the Bible supporting the idea that I'm supposed to increase in this life? Or do I read the Bible through the lens of the gospel that says that Christ is increasing. Am I like John the Baptist where I say I must decrease so that he must increase or is the gospel that I'm living because of him I increase in this life? My bank account increases, my status at work increases, my, hello? Instead of a false gospel rooted in humans hunger for power in this life, what Paul is calling Timothy to, what he's calling us to, is warning us to be about a gospel that transforms us to look like Jesus, to demonstrate Jesus, to make the gospel known, not through our mouth, but make the gospel known through a life that looks more like him. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, as for those who are going to follow you, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you have learned it 
and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's so much to unpack here. Timothy, if you're going to make it in this VUCA world, if you're going to come to the end of the race like, like me, like like Paul, and you're going to have a clear conscience, you're, you're, you're not going to be bitter, you're going to be better, Th- then Timothy, there's, there's some things that's going to have to happen in your life. Timothy, you're, if, if you really want to live this godly life, you've got to embrace yourself that bad things are going to happen, difficulty is going to come your way. A fake faith that says that if you follow Jesus, everything's going to be good. Timothy, it's going to cause you to flame out as a believer. You've got to understand. In fact, Timothy, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to embrace that you're going to be persecuted. And that persecution can't cause you to get bitter. It's going to cause you to, to get better. Because here's the thing. We're going to go through it because Christ went through it. And, and here's the thing, Timothy. Evil people are going to keep being evil. And, and evil is going to get worse and worse just got to understand, evil will go from bad to worse. It doesn't define you. The status of evil in this world doesn't affect you. It doesn't, de- 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 it doesn't define your faith. It gives a peek into these false teachers and their behavior in the context of the church. He said, these people deceive and are being deceived. You know what they do? You know what they do, Timothy? They go in and they take advantage of people. They teach a false gospel that finds these, these, these women, these individuals, and they, they prey upon them and they teach them this false gospel so that they can take advantage of them. Timothy, you can't be like this. Instead, you've got to understand. You've got to understand you have to continue in what you've learned. Paul gives a really interesting secret, and I wanted wanted to share this with you, and I just want you to see it, and I want you to think about it this week. Paul says, Timothy, follow in the pattern of what you've learned because you've seen it lived out in front of you. Desiree and I talk about this a lot. I worry about the platforms that exist in 2022. Listen, I'm I'm so grateful for the opportunity that we have to receive uh, Christian media from all over the world. But a couple weeks ago, I don't know if you recall, I talked about how sometimes as a pastor, it's really hard for me because I don't know what books to recommend to you, what podcasts to recommend to you. I don't I don't know what ministries to recommend to you because. If you're, if you're paying attention like I am, it seems like every other day there's a, a great controversy in the church and some great massive ministry or ministry leader has fallen or some terrible thing has happened. And, and over the course of 
all my years in ministry, I can't tell you how many times that I've been burned and that I've recommended a book to somebody or recommended a podcast or a ministry, and then that it comes out that that person was actually a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, that they were uh, raping and abusing and stealing and all of this stuff. And so many times as a leader, I've thought, wow, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've encouraged people to learn from this individual or this ministry, and then as it comes to find out it was all a fake it was a facade and while we know God's word doesn't return void and we know that he uses the donkey's mouth we understand that also there's a sense of responsibility and shepherding that causes me to worry and I, and I found this so fascinating that that Paul says to Timothy you know what follow in the faith of those that you know that you've seen live it out in front of you We live in a world where we're told, just go to church online, just, just get your message from the internet. I wonder, don't throw rocks at me, I wonder, I wonder if the way God designed us wasn't as such that we are supposed to learn from those we're walking with. Don't get me wrong, I'm not telling any of us that we should not receive from others. I'm just wondering if there's not a sense in which we as the body of Christ must not recognize and understand that there's something about proximity and relationship that exposes the authenticity of faith and the application of the word that should cause me to give greater credence to those I'm walking with than those who are simply media personalities. Now let me make it plain. If it's not North Place, go to church somewhere. Get in community. Get in relationship. It's easy for me to get up here and put on a show on Sunday. It would be really easy for me to turn on a camera and to teach you principles from God's word but never live them. It would be easy for me to write a book on parenting and you never see me parent. Hello? Paul says, Timothy, you can live out this faith because you've seen it lived out. We talk all the time at North Place about our Christianity being transgenerational. I believe the reason that we are losing generation after generation after generation is because we are losing. We are losing the idea that faith is transferred through proximity. We think it's transferred through intellectual arguments. I brought it all together. We think that it's transferred through better arguments, better books, better music, better materials. Paul says, no, Timothy, it's transferred through proximity. It's transferred through relationship. It's transferred through the fact that you've walked with people, you've seen them struggle, and you've seen them come out on the other side of that struggle and still believe in Jesus. Still be loving, still be kind, still be gentle. Still knows what it is to trust a God. To trust a God who is good in spite of my pain. Because you've seen it. Because you've seen it, you can live it. And Timothy, because you live it, you can pass it on to others. 